If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open to Titus chapter 3. There is an outline in the bulletin where you can track along this morning with some of the main thoughts in this sermon. This week and next week are our last two weeks in the book of Titus. So it's a short book. It's not that long that we've been working through Titus and we're almost to the end. Uh, Just a quick preview of what's coming up over the next couple of months this year. Uh, In the summer, June and July, we're going to talk about Jesus, knowing Jesus. Who is he? And we're going to spend several weeks just talking about his character and his attributes and things that you need to know about what the Bible has to say about Jesus, who he is, and what difference that makes in your life. In the fall, when we get to August, all the way through the end of the year, we're going to look at Psalm 119. So in the past, we've done a series through the book of Psalms. We spent one summer working through various Psalms, and we've revisited the book of Psalms several times. We're just going to take Psalm 119, all 176 verses divided into 22 stanzas of eight verses each, and we're just going to take one stanza a week, The entire psalm is about the Bible, the Word of God, and we're going to spend the fall all the way up through Christmas just thinking about what the Bible says about the Bible and what difference that makes in our lives. This morning, we're still in the book of Titus, and one of the things that we've said almost every week is that Paul had left Titus on the island of Crete, and he left him there to put the churches into order. And I know you're tired of me mentioning this verse, but I just direct your attention to Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. That almost reads like a throwaway verse 2,000 years later. You may be tempted to read that and say, oh, that's just a little personal correspondence between Paul and Titus and the history between the two and why Titus was on the island of Crete. But it's really much more than that. It's a reminder at the outset of this pastoral epistle that God actually cares about how His church is constituted and how it operates and how it functions. God has not simply put us into the church to figure it out for ourselves, But he actually has an opinion about how the church ought to operate. He wants it. God wants his church to be put into order. And as we've worked our way through the book of Titus, we're beginning to understand in a fuller way what does it mean for a church to be put into order. So there's four sections in this book, a short introduction, and then there's a section on right leadership. What does right leadership in a church look like? At the middle of the book, there's a short section on right doctrine, and right doctrine centers on the gospel message, the good news about Jesus Christ. And then the final section is about right living. What does right living look like uh, amongst the people of God within the church of God? And so far, we've said several things about right living. One of the things we said about right living is that it involves how we submit to authority, That's chapter 3, verse 1. One of the things we said about right living is that it involves how we relate to other people. So how we submit to authority, how we relate to other people. And then also in chapter 3, how we remember the gospel. Right living in your life is not possible if you forget the gospel or if you've never understood the gospel. So we're building this case at the end of the book about what does right living look like and we'll add this. Uh, to right living this morning. Those who believe in God 
should be devoted to good works. Those who believe in God should be devoted to good works. That's the big idea of our passage. And as I present you with that big idea, I want to present it to you with two caveats, or you might say two clarifications. And these are not on your outline, but I'm going to put them up on the screen just so we're all on the same page. Caveat number one, this phrase, believe in God, those who believe in God should devote themselves to good works. That means more than mere theism. That's more than do you believe there is a God, do you believe there is a higher power? That's not the question that we're asking. In the context of the book of Titus, what we're talking about when we say believing in God is full-orbed, complete, Trinitarian Christian faith. And we talked about this just last week as we looked at a summary of the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit who regenerates us. It's the Son who saves us. It's the Father who justifies us. So we're not saying anyone and everyone who believes that there is a God ought to devote themselves to good works. But what we're saying in the context of Titus is Christians who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and understand the truth about the triune God, those people should devote themselves to good works. Now here's the second caveat. Believing in God has to come before your devotion to good works. You cannot get the order of those swapped. You, you can't say, I'm going to devote myself to good works, and the people who devote themselves to good works should also believe in God. It doesn't work that way. First, you have to believe in God. Not just a God, but the one true God, the triune God. That has to come first. Your understanding and acceptance of the gospel message. Once that's in place, and only when that's in place, are you then called to devote yourself to good works. And we've talked about this last week when I said to you that it's the gospel that enables and empowers and motivates good works in our lives. Apart from the gospel, there is no true understanding, no genuine understanding of what it means to be devoted to good works. So that's the big idea. Those who believe in God should be devoted to good works. Now let's read our passage. Titus chapter 3, verse 8, 9, 10, and 11. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Father, as your people, we stop and thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for a book uh, like Titus, a short book uh, that presents us with the essentials of what it means for a church to be put into order. Uh, we pray that you would grant us right leadership. We pray that uh, you would help us to embrace right doctrine, the good news of the gospel. And we pray that our lives would be marked by right living, 
And Lord, this morning we pray that you would help us to put all of these things together as we think about uh, the call on our lives as your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I got on Facebook this morning, and there's already lots of Mother's Day posts. So if you get on social media today, there's lots of people posting pictures of their mother, with their mother, happy Mother's Day uh, to their mom or to their grandma. So a holiday like Mother's Day is kind of a respite on social media from what you normally get on social media. What you normally get on social media are videos of cats doing funny things, and you watch those and you enjoy those. Uh, You get uh, your grandma, no offense grandmas, but usually it's your grandma sharing a picture, and it has like 500 C's, letter C, and there's one O, and your grandma says, I bet you can't find the O. She wants you to look at that and find the O, and then, you know, you look at it. You say, Grandma, why are you posting this? And then what do you do? You look at it. You say, there's got to be an O in here somewhere. So there's all that sort of stuff. There's memes that some you understand, some you don't understand. And certainly what you normally find on social media is people having opinions about something and expressing that opinion for the world to hear because all of us are just breathlessly waiting on everyone's opinion on any given topic. But that's what happens on social media. You find out really quick that people have opinions about things and that people want to, they have a strong desire to express their opinions about certain things. And the way that that happens in our lives is usually us saying, I'm for this, I'm in favor of this, and I'm against that. There's usually a positive and a negative when we try to express our opinion to other people and when we try to convince other people that our opinion is right. Let me just give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. I might say to you that the very best Mexican food in Odessa, Texas is Elva's Taco Casa on 8th Street. If I said that, I would be correct, by the way. It's number one, the very best. I would say I am for Elvas, and here's the reasons I'm for Elvas. Have you ever had their cheese chili relleno burrito? There's nothing better in town. But you might say, no, I'm against Elvas because they don't have chips and queso, and I want chips and queso, so I want to go somewhere with chips and queso. So one of us would say, I'm for this thing, and then one of us would say, no, I'm against this thing. I would rather go somewhere else because I'm against that and I'm for this, and we would make an argument in that way. This is the essence of analysts on TV talking about sports, whatever station, whatever channel you like to listen to. Who's the best player? Who's the best team? Who's going to win today? Who's the the favorite for the title? One guy or girl gets up and says, well, I think this. I'm for this person, this team, whatever. And then another person says, no, you're crazy. I'm against that idea, and here's why I'm against it, and here's the idea that I'm for, and it's an argument for and against. Cable news. This is the same idea in cable news with politics. Somebody gets on, a talking head, they say, I'm for this party, we're for that party, here's why, this is the the good in it, this is the benefit, this is why you should be for it, and then someone else pops up, depending on the station you're on, and says, no, we're against that, we don't like that, we're not for that, we don't want that law, we don't want that candidate, we don't want that Uh, that person running for office or winning office. It's arguments for and arguments against. Now, we could also talk about church. I understand that church 
rightly understood, is not a consumer product. It's not something that you ought to be shopping for. But I'm also not foolish enough to think that people don't say this when it comes to church. People say, well, I like this church because this, this, this. I'm for these things. And then people say, well, I don't like another church because of this. This is too big. It's too small. The music's too old. It's too contemporary. The people are too nice or they're not nice enough or whatever it may be. People say, well, I'm for these things or I'm against these things. Now, if you've been paying attention to the book of Titus, you know by now that there's this for and against tension that's run all the way through the book. And it starts all the way back in chapter 1 when we talk about what elders ought to do in their role in leading the church. And if the elders are to do this in leading the church, by implication, the entire church ought to follow along with the elders. And the idea is that elders must be for sound doctrine and right living, and they must be against false teaching and sin. You've got to be for some things as a church, positively, but you also have to be against certain things as a church. And so that's how we're going to break the passage down this morning. It's a simple breakdown as you think about these verses in Titus 3. We'll start with the positive. A church put into order will stand for the gospel and good works. A church that is put into right order will be a church that stands for, positively, the gospel, the truth of the gospel, and for good works in the lives of the people of God. So the first thing to note is that Paul's trustworthy saying in verse 8 refers back to the gospel summary of Titus chapter 3, verse 4, 5, 6, and 7. So if you look in your Bible at verse 8, uh, the very first saying is, the saying is trustworthy. The saying is trustworthy. The Greek phrase here is pistos has logos. Here is a faithful, a believable, a trustworthy, a reliable word. Pistos has logos. Paul uses that phrase five times in his letters. Five times. All five times that Paul says, here is a trustworthy saying... All five times he says it are in letters that he wrote to pastors. Not to churches, but to pastors. To Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and to Titus. Here is a faithful word, a reliable word, something that's true. Now everything that Paul wrote to these pastors was true, but these five statements, he just wants to add a little bit of gravitas to it, a little bit of emphasis. And so he says, let me tell you something that is true. Now sometimes when Paul uses that phrase, he says, here's a faithful word, and then he gives the faithful word. Sometimes when he says, this is a faithful word, he just said the faithful word, and I think that's what we're dealing with in verse 8. He's actually looking back to what he just said in verse 4, 5, 6, and 7, and he's saying to Titus, Titus, what I just told you is a faithful, true, reliable, take-it-to-the-bank truth that you need to understand and that your people need to understand. So just back up and look at what he said in verse 4 to 7. He said, when the goodness and loving kindness of uh, God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Titus, that is a trustworthy word. That summary of the gospel, that it's the Holy Spirit who regenerates us, that it's God the Son, Jesus, who saved us by dying our death on the cross, and that it's God the Father who declares us to be righteous, not based on our works, but by His grace and based on the works of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This work of the triune God in salvation is a trustworthy word. And Paul wanted Titus to, quote, insist on these things. Now, I'm reading out of the ESV, and I'm giving you the word used in the ESV in the middle of verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Now, normally when we say, I insist, we're talking about something I'm going to do for you or you're going to do for me. We're talking about an action. But in this instance, when Paul says, Titus, I want you to insist on these things, uh, scholars tell us that what he's saying is, I want you to stress these things. I want you to be confident in these things. I want you to emphasize these things. If we were speaking in a an idiomatic American way, just sort of the way that we normally communicate, we might say, Titus, you got to hammer these things home. Titus, you got to pound this drum. Titus, you got to talk about these things, verse 4, 5, 6, and 7. you got to let it rip. Do not hold back. Titus, you have to put these truths on repeat. You have to say them over and over and over and over again. Titus, when it comes to the truth of the gospel, do not pull any punches. You've got to let people hear the truth about what the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have done to save sinners. You've got to insist on the gospel so that the people of God would be careful, careful, That word means we're intentional about it. We're thoughtful about it. We're not just going to slide into it. It's not just going to happen on its own. But we're going to be careful to be devoted to good works. I love the way John Calvin summarized this idea in his commentary. It's an old commentary. He says, the meaning of Paul is sufficiently clear that the design of Christian doctrine is that believers should exercise themselves in good works. Yet he is not so careful about good works as to despise the root, which is faith, while he's gathering the fruits. There's two important things that he says in that summary. He says, number one, the aim of Christian doctrine is that our lives bear fruit, that we be devoted to good works. Titus, I want you to insist on these things so that those who believe in God would be careful to devote themselves to good works. And in talking about good works, he doesn't separate it from faith because he says those who believe in God, those who have trusted in Christ, those who have responded to the gospel, it's grounded in our faith But our faith and sound doctrine is to move us to lives of good works. Those who have believed in God should be careful to devote themselves 
to good works. Now, this has a lot of value for us today. Paul wanted Titus to know that the devotion to good works was good for human flourishing. Faith in God and a devotion to good works, these things are good for human flourishing. Look at the last thing he says in verse 8. Saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things, these things, what things? Faith in God and a devotion to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for Christians, for churchgoers, for people who attend VBS in the summer, for the kind of people who send their kids to youth camp over the summer. No, these things are excellent and profitable for who? People. All people. This is a good thing for all people. To put your faith in the one true God and to devote your lives to good works. This is Worldview Basics 101 right here at the end of the book of Titus. And I'm telling you that living today in the year 2023 in the United States of America in a Western nation, you have a decision to make about how you think about faith in God and a devotion to good works. One position that you can take, I think it's the right position, I think it's what Paul's describing here, is that humans flourish. The best thing for human beings, all humans, is to put their faith in the one true God and to devote themselves to good works. The world, the culture, the spirit in which you live today says that the best thing for human beings is to live out completely autonomous lives with no restraint, with no legal restraint, with no moral restraint, with no religious restraint, with no societal restraint, with no interpersonal restraint, simply to live out whatever they want to live out. And if human beings could be free to do that, that's when human beings flourish. The world believes that so much today, that is so deeply embedded in the spirit of our age, that today, for you to even suggest, for me to suggest that, no, the best thing for human flourishing is that you have faith in God and you devote yourself to good works. To say that to someone today is viewed as an act of violence and oppression because they're so committed to the idea that human autonomy is the key to flourishing. But it's not. Have you ever read the book of Judges? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There were no restraints. And the proverbial wheels came off the bus. The proverbial train went off the track. Society completely devolved and collapsed and fell to pieces because human autonomy was elevated as the highest good rather than faith in the one true God and being devoted to good works. I'm asking you, I'm begging you as Christian people living in the 21st century, do not be intimidated and do not lose your nerve when the world turns against you and when the world says, no, you can't say that. No, you can say that because the Word of God says it. 
Faith in God and a devotion to good works is excellent and it is profitable for people. Full stop. You have to reckon with what the church is for before you begin to understand what the church is against. So there's a trustworthy saying, we're going to insist on the gospel, we're going to be devoted to good works, and this is good for human flourishing. Now let's talk about what we're against. That's the positive argument. Here's the negative argument. A church put into order will stand against false teaching and sin. And I just want to warn you here that the things I'm about to lay out are the things that Paul has laid out to Titus. And if you thought that what we just talked about was countercultural, buckle up. Because what he says in the back end of this passage is completely countercultural, even to the wisdom of many churches today. So we'll start with this. Paul wanted Titus to stay out of certain disputes. That's a novel idea, isn't it? Sometimes you don't have to have an opinion about everything. And sometimes you can have an opinion about a thing and not express it to everyone. There are times in your life where you ought to just stay out of a particular dispute. Look at verse 9. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable. Do you see the contrast? Faith in God, devotion to good works, verse 8 is profitable. Here's something that's unprofitable. Fighting, uh, foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, these things are unprofitable and they're worthless. Now this requires some thinking. I'm just going to be straight with you. This requires some thinking and some wisdom. Because if you go back to Titus chapter 1, which we talked about several weeks ago, Paul says that one of the qualifications for an elder pastor overseer as he leads a church, is that he be willing and able to confront false teaching. Don't just stay out of it, but he's actually called to engage it. The two words that Paul says to Titus are, you need to silence it and you need to rebuke it. That's not staying out, is it? That's engaging with false teaching and saying it needs to be silenced and it needs to to be rebuked. So we've already seen that in the book of Titus. Silence it and rebuke it. Now he says, look, I just want you to stay out of these things. And you're left scratching your head saying, Paul, what exactly do you want me to do? Do you want me to silence it? Do you want me to rebuke it? Or do you want me to stay out of it? And knowing how to answer that question requires great wisdom. The kind of wisdom expressed by a modern day prophet named Kenny Rogers You got to know when to hold them. You got to know when to fold them. And you got to know when to walk away and you got to know when to run. That's kind of what Paul's saying here. Titus, there's a time where you got to hold them, stay in the game, rebuke them and silence them. When the essence of the gospel is at stake, when the fundamental truths of biblical truth are being compromised, you got to stay in the game. You got to rebuke those people and you got to silence those people. You cannot back down. Titus, if it's just foolish stuff, silly arguments, stuff that's neither here nor there, stuff that doesn't matter, stuff that's just going to unnecessarily divide the people of God, you have to stay out of that. You can't stick your nose in every dispute or discussion or debate. 
So you've got to know when to silence and rebuke, and you've got to know when to stay out. Now let's make it more countercultural. Paul wanted Titus to instruct the churches in the process of church discipline. That's what follows in verse 10. You're going to stay out of these disputes, but that doesn't mean you're going to be entirely passive, Titus. There's actually something that you might need to do. Verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Warn them once if they're divisive. Warn them twice if they don't repent. And at some point, Titus, you have to completely walk away from these people, and you have to have nothing to do with them. What Paul's talking to Titus about is the process of church discipline, and I listed a whole bunch of verses for you. This is not the only passage in the New Testament that talks about church discipline. We often think about Matthew 18 and uh, 1 Corinthians 5, but there's all sorts of passages that talk about how we as a church would engage in the practice of church discipline. There's a process laid out here. And you take these passages together, there's a pattern that develops. You go to a person, you confront them, you talk to them. If they don't listen, maybe you go back with somebody else. At some point, the church has to say, you know what, this is too much, it's too far. And somebody's membership in a church has to be terminated because they are not believing in the one true God or they're completely unwilling to devote themselves to good works. They are completely stubborn in unrepentant sin refusing to turn back to the truth, refusing to change their life in any way, shape, or form. And at that point, their membership in a church is essentially terminated. Now, Baptists, if you go back in history, did not always have such a gut-level, visceral, knee-jerk reaction to what I'm saying. Because what I'm describing to you is in a process of going and confronting somebody and rebuking somebody and saying the church is asking you, is telling you that you've got to change. And if you don't, you can't be a member here. Let's be honest, that sounds kind of mean, right? Baptists today say, oh, you cannot do that to anybody. But Baptists in previous generations didn't have this qualms of conscience when it comes to the practice of church discipline. In fact, in Previous generations, not that long ago, Baptist theologians talked about three marks of a true church. Three marks of a true church. Number one, the right preaching of the gospel. Number two, the right observance of the ordinances. And number three, the right practice of church discipline. That's what a true church is, according to some previous generations of Baptists. One of the greatest Baptist theologians of all time, John L. Dagg said it like this, when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. If a church is unwilling to do these things that the New Testament calls a church to do, then Christ has essentially left and Ichabod has been written over the door of that church. It no longer bears the blessing of God. Today, people in the Bible Belt think about church membership on about the same level as they think about their Sam's Club membership. I paid my dues. You have no right to take that away from me. Who do you think you are? I'm entitled to membership in a particular church for a particular reason. They don't think about it any differently than a 
Lions Club membership or a Sam's Club membership or membership in any other civic organization. I paid my dues, so I get to be a member. I have that right. And I'm just telling you, that's not biblical Christianity. It's American Christianity. It's cultural Christianity, but it's not New Testament Christianity. Step back and think about what we've said so far about what we're against. And just think about how how often churches get this backward. Paul says, stay out of certain disputes. And if somebody won't and they're dividing the church, you need to get them out of the church. And today, most churches say, we're going to stick our nose in every dispute but we're not going to remove anybody from membership in a church for any reason, period, because you just can't do something like that. So we take the wisdom of Titus, a book that tells us how to put a church in order, and we flip it completely upside down, and we stubbornly pretend like we know better how to run a church than God does, and then we step back and we say, I wonder why all these kids today aren't part of church. I wonder why so many of our churches are dysfunctional. Why do you think so many of our churches are fighting? And why do you think so many of our churches are are off on weird tangents and bad doctrine? And why are so many churches dying? Do you know how many churches die? Hundreds of churches die. Thousands of churches die every year in the United States because there's no one left. And we say, man, it's not like the old days. What went wrong? It, It must be the young generation. They just must be the worst. Rather than saying, maybe we have failed to listen to the wisdom of God's Word when it comes to how you rightly order a church. Now, I understand when it comes to church discipline in that process. I understand that some churches have been mean, and they've been cruel, and they've been ugly, and they haven't followed the biblical process correctly, and they've got things out of order. And I understand people have been hurt by that. And I regret all of those things. I just think the far more common error today is churches completely ignoring those verses that we put up on the screen earlier and saying we don't want anything to do with that because it's awkward and it's uncomfortable and we're just not going to do it. And then we wonder and we scratch our heads at the state of our churches. Lastly, church discipline aims for the unity of the church and the restoration of the sinner. I'm pulling this from verse 10 and 11. And I'm pulling it from all the other verses that we put up on the screen earlier as we talked about church discipline. There's a chronically divisive person. You warn them once, you warn them twice. Eventually they have no place within the church. That doesn't mean you treat them like a pariah. It just means they can't be an active member of a church. They can come to your church. They can be in your service or your Bible study. They just cannot hold membership within the local church. You separate yourselves from these people. Verse 11, Paul says they're warped, they're sinful, they're self-condemned. The aim is that a church is put into order, that unity is preserved, and that repentance and restoration are the end. So we're thinking about right living. That's the section of Titus we're in, right living. What happens in our church is completely tied up with right living. It's not just an individualistic thing, but it's a we're in this together kind of thing. Right living as a church means that we're a church put into order. It means that we are for certain things and we're equally against other things. And so we continue to pray this morning that God would put 
us into order.